Hello and welcome to part two of the liberalism debate. And um, I'm very pleased to see that it was uh, quite well received in the comments. So thank you for being so nice and praising our debate. And uh, I think we're going to more or less pick up where we left off. Um, there are a few points that I wanted to uh, sort of expand on that you made that I wanted sort of clarifying, I suppose. And I think there's still a lot to unpack. We could probably turn this into multiple debates, but I'm not going to do that. Perhaps we can revisit Maybe it. Maybe we can it. if it's needed. Well, yeah, I suppose so. But um, it's going to really ruin my schedule for contemplations if right. we're constantly debating liberalism. But we can, we can return <laughs> to it. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm all for it. But <clears throat> I suppose we may as well go around and just kind of recap what we think, just so everyone's on board, because it's, it's been a week since we did the last one. And uh, I imagine people need reminding of our general positions. So um, who would like to go first? Okay, I'll go first. Okay. Uh, I think liberalism is incomplete and without being anchored to some other kind of moral framework, it tends to curve back on itself like a snake eating its own tail and destroy everything around it because that's all it knows. Uh, I think liberalism largely pretends to be a negative and neutral doctrine, but I think <clears> it's a comprehensive positive doctrine for its commitments to the often antagonistic goals of autonomy and equality. And so it is vulnerable to charges from Marxist types that would like to expand those definitions and bring those two concepts to its apotheosis so it can metastasize into both a social acid on traditions and a gateway to totalitarianism, which is what we're seeing now. Mm -hmm. And uh, my summary is going to be pretty simple. I'm not a liberal, but I think liberalism gets a little bit of a hard time. And I think that a lot of the time, a lot of the accusations towards liberalism might be due to other things. And although, you know, it's not my ideal system, I think it's one of the better ones. And I'm going to have a very dispassionate defense of it this time. And uh, what about you, Stelios? Thank you. Okay. So basically I want to say about uh, classical liberalism, that it is an umbrella term. There are many forms of it. The form I am in favor of is that is the one that says that the state should be neutral with respect to comprehensive moral doctrines. I can elaborate a bit later on if I'm asked and if I get the time about what this actually means. And I think that the criticisms from the previous uh, part all miss their targets. And let me just say uh, very briefly, Number one, there is a conflation between value neutrality and neutrality with respect to comprehensive moral doctrines. And there is also the argument you gave about liberalism cannot account for a nun joining a monastery. I think that it doesn't have to account for it. It's not supposed to account for it. So I don't see how that's a criticism for it. Also, I think that uh, your position is far more Rousseauian than our, our position is. And uh, I can argue also for it in a bit. If you know, I don't want to bore it, well, I'll, brief it. I'll keep it brief. And also I think that the presentation of liberalism as something that here's this Englishman Locke and his position is not exactly good for several reasons and it has to lead to this crazy man here, Rousseau, is mistaken. So that's for the beginning. and. I can elaborate afterwards if I get the opportunity. Very aggressive. <laughs> Very aggressive framing. 
We, d- well, we just showed up to have the I'm continuation of the chat. We didn't go away and script all the responses. So I'm not saying I didn't but, enjoy it. I'm just, we'll get into okay. it. Um, shall we start with something completely different? Uh, unintentional Monty Python reference there. But um, I, I was wondering whether you could expand a bit on the atomization thing, because mm. I think that there's a case for this going on, but I think to, to lay the blame at liberalism or majority liberalism, right, in how you break down the factors. I'm not saying that you deny that it's a multiple factor thing and it's complicated. That's, you know, you obviously think that. Um, But I'm curious as to how much blame is there on liberalism? What exactly do you mean by atomization as well? Because of course there are lots of different ways you can uh, interpret it. Um, As well as, I suppose, what other factors do you think are important? Because I think that actually with this sort of thing, it's quite a social phenomena, atomization, as yeah. far as I understand it. And so looking at it through a social lens, looking at social factors, tends to be the way I look at it, rather than, say, looking at the, the atmosphere or the frame or the, whatever the political yeah. system is doing, because that seems quite abstract to my mind. And I, I imagine that there's a, a better qualification than my initial understanding. Okay, so I can answer this. Um, the purpose of liberalism is to free men from the social bonds that hold them in place in a very old feudal society. Right? So people are born into stations in life, and one of the purposes of liberalism is to actually free them of those things. And this would have seemed like a very necessary thing at the time when liberalism was conceived. Uh, or at least when it became self-conscious as a doctrine, mm-hmm. should we say? Um, because this is something that was unjustly holding people in positions that they either weren't suited for or they weren't able to progress beyond or whatever. You know, they, they weren't actually free in their daily lives. And that, that, there is an argument that that is a necessary thing. But the problem with liberalism is the way it construes itself is it constructs itself beginning from the position of atomization which is man in the state of nature. He's not in a tribe. He's wandering around the woods on his own. And in the Lockean and Rousseauian and Hobbesian view, man comes together and consciously chooses to form a society and a state. Right? But that's not true. And mm. therefore, the presupposition of man wandering around as free-roaming atoms in the wilderness is also not true. But that's what liberalism is seeking to restore us to in all things because it views that as being the kind of perfect place that human beings should be in. Right? And so, I mean, you get doctrines like Rousseau that are expressly built around returning man to this position of atomization in the state of nature. And Rousseau just literally says his ideal will be where the man, no man has an obligation to one another, but they are completely dependent upon the state. And that's word for word what he says. And so that's the teleology of liberalism when divorced from a separate set of values, when given its own values, it looks at the world and says, well, Everything should be based on consent because that's how man in the state of nature would have interacted with man. And therefore, if something is an obligation that you're born into and didn't choose, and yet it puts onus on you to do something that you have inherited rather than opted for, then that thing is illegitimate and oppressive in some way. And therefore, little by little over time, those things will be slowly sheared off until it is at the point where, oh, you refuse to transition your children while well, you're oppressing that child, and he needs to be saved by the state from the oppressive uh, conglomerate of the family 
because he's not being able to live his authentic free life as if he was on his own completely. And this is the problem that liberalism has with just anything social. It doesn't have a positive doctrine of bond building. It only has a negative doctrine of bond destroying. And as I said at the beginning, in the context of the 16th and 17th centuries, that may well have seemed like a very sensible thing to have, because of course you've inherited a great deal of baggage from the pre-modern sort of feudal era, and society would have felt cloying and oppressive, and it would have actively prevented one group of people from achieving something they could have achieved, and offered that opportunity to another group of people purely based on things like the position in life they were born into. And there would have been one rule for the peasants, one rule for the aristocracy, and it would have seemed very favorable to have a doctrine that leveled this out and solved this problem. But that problem has disappeared, or at least by and large disappeared. And now we're experiencing the problems of liberalism uh, with, married to, the sort of technological revolution Mm. that enables us not only to philosophically justify why we actually shouldn't spend any time with any other people, but it also gives us the means to do it. And so now we have a society that's just splitting apart and, you know, just a bunch of free radicals becoming more and more dependent on the state in the Rousseauian model. And so it seems that the desires of liberalism, what it promised to bring about, are coming to fruition. And I don't see how we can say it's anything other than liberalism. Either. So, first and foremost, I'd like to say I agreed with a lot of what you said, particularly in reference to French liberalism, which, of course, I think yeah. everyone here would agree that. It's a very different kind of thing to English liberalism. And I think the case would be slightly harder to make for English liberalism because that's more of a philosophy of law and therefore it's not as focused, although of course it is by necessity, on the relationship between the individual and the state because it doesn't necessarily put the state on a pedestal in the same way that Rousseau did. Can can I I give my reasons why I think that is? Because So liberalism, if Oakeshott is correct, is just the abstraction of English political traditions. And what you have with the political tradition is the, the narrative of the tradition. But you also have lots of other things that go unspoken that go along with that tradition. Uh, and so it situates the ideology in a place and a time and a people. Mm-hmm. Right? This still exists in politics today in a certain extent yeah, yeah. with all of the, um, I remember studying politics and all of the different parliamentary conventions that aren't necessarily law, yeah. but are just the done thing. Exactly. There are yeah. lots of things that are just the done thing, but all of these attachments on the ideology kind of prevent the ideology from being an ideology, as in something abstract that can be just formulated and then adopted by anyone. And so you'll get, um, like, for example, I, I had a conversation about this with Apostolic Majesty, and he seems like a very, very conservative person, but because I was attacking liberalism so aggressively, he found himself on the defensive for liberalism because he's English, because what he, I think he felt that was being attacked were also the political traditions of the <clears throat> English, which of course, as an Englishman, we would like, you know, we would like certainly to certainly feel that a little bit myself. Exactly. Yeah. But then when, okay, so if you take uh, the framework that you can ra- rationally extract and then apply it to a country that doesn't have the institutions and traditions upon which that thing rests, then it becomes, as Connor puts it, a kind of acid where it looks at, from, with fresh eyes, it looks at everything that already exists and says, I can't justify any of these things, therefore they all have to go. And therefore it starts just slicing down into the civilization 
until you get to some quite awful things. Um, and I think that's what's happened with liberalism in France. Yeah, and I think it's a very statist liberalism that does that. It's not, yeah. it's not especially um, hands-off, is it? If it's interfering in people's everyday lives, and I think yeah. we, we can all admit that you know, the, the kind of liberalism that would be most desirable if we had to pick would probably be sort of classical liberalism, that it's very hands-off. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, mm-hmm. like, but, but that really is just saying, oh, you're a traditional Englishman. Well, wouldn't you just like traditional Englishness? In your political system, it's like, well, yeah, you're just telling me what I want to hear, which is why liberalism actually works quite well in Anglophone countries, because essentially you're just parroting back at someone what they already believe, right? But when you take it somewhere that isn't what they already believe, and you say, right, this is the new thing, in the, the, the old attachments in our country aren't present in the new country. And so all they have to go on is what they have been rationally presented with, right? This is the sum total doctrine of liberalism. It's like, well, I guess a lot of things have to change and a lot of people have to get beheaded at this point. I mean, we, you know, we, we had a civil war in the, the very earliest stages of all of this. Um, and we got past it quite quickly because we had more than merely a doctrine. And I think that if we had had only the doctrine, it probably would have gone the same way. Yeah, and I think um, the the case of trying to implement uh, liberal democracy in Iraq after we yeah. toppled it, it just didn't work, did it? No. So, but that's I, the thing: we yeah. didn't, we never implemented liberal democracy. It emerged, of course. Yeah, else, you know? I, I don't. Whereas in other countries, they're trying to implement it, and that requires essentially bending the entire civilization to the will of one ideology. I think that never works, no matter what the ideology yeah. is. Um, I think that's part of the reason why I'm sort of conservative by instinct is that. I don't think you can just top down impose a political system on people and it work. Yeah, that's why the Soviet Union ended up mm-hmm. did end up collapsing. That's exactly what I would have said. Yeah, um, but the, the one point that I think I, I want to pick apart because I agree with most of what mm-hmm. you said, to be honest, um, is that there was a part where you talked about modernity in particular and the atomization thing, which I think was the original um, raison d'etre for talking about this in the first place, and. I think that actually, if we sort of have in mind the kind of communities of the past, which in many ways were communities of necessity, I think it's, it's fair to say, oh, in yeah. that you, know, you live in the same proximity, it's difficult, you've got to go horse and cart or by foot or boat if you're near the coast. So it's very difficult to get around. And I think more than anything, I think it's technological development that has which is going to take us on to the point that I, I yep. mentioned to Connor off air that you kept on using the, the point technology and liberalism sort of interchangeably. And I yep. think we need to open this. Uh, I, I don't want to call it a can of worms because that's over-egging it a bit. But um, I, I see technology not necessarily as inextricably linked to liberalism. I think um, your political system and your approach to technological development can be two very different things. Mm. Well, hang on. So yes, but. Uh, the things you develop are a reflection of the values that you hold. So, I mean, in the Islamic world, for example, they were microchipping their wives so they could be sure they aren't leaving the country without... Um, I must have missed that part of the Quran. Um, well, no, it's, it's, <laughs> it's a logical extension of what is in the Quran. If the woman is the property and subservient to the man, then you get countries like Saudi Arabia or Iran where they can't leave the country without a man's, or can't even leave the house without a man's permission. And so, yeah, you end up microchipping your wife if the technology makes it available. I mean, we do it to our pets. I mean, it sounds like a good idea to me. Sure. Um, but the, but the <laughs> I'm point joking, is, by the way. 
That's what they did with technology because that's their value system. Mm -hmm. What we do with technology is make it so that the individual person relies less and less upon the other person mm -hmm. because that's our value system. Mm -hmm. Can I can I unpack quite a lot of that? Because uh, this is would I be able my... to make a, a very quick point? Yeah, um, uh, I'm just going to clarify how I see it so you can kind of build upon what I said. Um, basically, my notion of what technology is is that it's something that is. Um, always morally neutral because you need to be a human being and have intention to have a you know any sense of morality sure and so how we react to technology we are sentient beings we don't have to respond in a way that is counterproductive there can be a technology that could be used badly but we sure. can recognize the shortfalls in it we're intelligent creatures some of us um that some of us is a point I want to pick up on. Yeah, I thought you might. Um, but there, there are enough people in society, I think, um, particularly the ones who develop the technologies in the first place, that are going to be well aware of the shortfalls. Like if you, if you talk to someone developing AI, they're probably going to be the most well-versed in talking about the dangers of AI. And so that as long as we have a sufficiently um, responsible approach to things, which, to be fair, we don't have at the minute, but I don't think that's liberalism's fault. I think there are many different reasons why we're complacent, sure. but I don't necessarily see um, technology as being to blame, so to speak. I always see it as individuals and their values, because you can have technology, like I have a smartphone and a TV, but I don't fall to the shortfalls of them that many other people do, because I was well aware of Oh yeah, you can get addicted to your smartphone. Oh yeah, TV is a load of rubbish. I don't watch yeah. any television programs. But some people do fall prey to that. And, and so it's all about the mindset. The, the, the TV has no negative impact on my life. Well, this, it doesn't control me in any way, um, but it can control other people who don't have the right frame of mind, in my view. Sure, but from a civilizational perspective, technology really is just to enable you to do whatever you were doing to a greater degree of efficiency. Right? Sure, yeah. So you invent bows to hunt mammoths better rather than stabbing them with a spear, right? Things like this. Um, we have an individualistic culture that believes that the individual is sovereign and should be as much as possible in charge of all of the decisions of their life, which seems intuitively true to us because that's what we believe. And so technology moves in that arc to ensure that each person is more and more in control of more and more aspects of their daily life. But what this also does is actually breaks a bunch of bonds and silos us away from one another um, to the point where in about 20 years time, where literally everyone on earth, basically or 30 years time, 40 years time, when everyone in, in the West grew up with a smartphone, there isn't going to be a shared culture. There's going to be a bunch of people who have got very curated experiences of the world and use different kinds of language, different sort of shibboleths for different communities. You know, when we, we say based and cringe and the average person says, I don't know what it means. Uh, they'll have weird terms that you don't know either. And how do you even call that a society? And so technology has just gone, has just taken us down the route that was in line with our values anyway and facilitated the increasing atomization of our countries. Mm hmm so there's, it, it's not that technology is good or bad, it's just that it does what we want it to do. Yeah, and I think that there is an element of... Uh, sorry, Connor, I will get to you. That's all right. Um, there is an element of... I can of, tell Stelios wants to say something. <laughs> no, no, no. Well, this I'm, is kind of my I'm specialist topic, to, so... Yeah. Um, I think that, that there is an element of, in the past, communities tended to 
be a lot more tolerant of people because you had to spend time with people who were different to you potentially. Well, just as they know, or they could be more intolerant, actually. Um, Well, they're more intolerant of the external, but more tolerant of the internal. No, not at all. Think, think Think about your Devon village where you've got old grannies paying attention to all of these things you're doing and making sure you're not doing so and so and such and such. That's not because of tolerance. That's intolerance. That's making them do that. That is true. Because yeah. they want to catch you and they'll, they'll berate you from doing something. And then you'll get every granny in the village. They are the petty Stasi, yeah. Exactly. But there's a reason for that because it keeps the homogeneity and peace and tranquility of mm-hmm. the village in place. You know? And so actually there is, a, there is a reason that intolerance exists in these places. It has a function and it does some good, actually. I, I think that, that there is an element of that I do appreciate and enjoy. As someone who's kind of lived through it a little bit, I think there's a, a sort of tyranny of mediocrity there. Yeah, absolutely. I'm not saying it doesn't have a, a, a downside as well. Um, but the, the liberal view is that that shouldn't exist at all. And there should be no claims on one another mm-hmm. in a social way like that. And I don't know if I agree with that, actually. Um, I imagine that it's, it's entirely possible, though, to hold a, a liberal view and also see the value in sort of local community, right? It's, sure. it's not necessarily Hang incompatible. On. It just doesn't often co-occur. Hang on, gut dog. I can hear you <laughs> growling. No, I didn't growl. I just, <laughs> you definitely growled. Um, the the, problem, right, get the, the problem is it requires a moral system that isn't liberalism to be present at the same time because liberalism's consent-based morality can only, through its own standards, examine that circumstance and go, well, that woman's got no right to tell him he can't dress up as a fairy and spend all his time masturbating in his room. Like, no, no, she's got every right. It just doesn't come from liberalism that this right comes. It comes from some other moral function, such as traditionalism, Christianity, Islam, whatever it is, that says that the the purpose of the life, the good life for a human being actually doesn't involve being a degenerate kuma who's got too many cum socks hanging around his house. I don't remember that part of John Locke's... uh, uh, Well, actually, that's uh, it's kind of implicit in all of liberalism, Mm -hmm. is that actually it's materialist, and so it ends up folding itself kind of into utilitarianism, and that's basically where you end up. But is it not um, materialistic simply because those are the terms in which the two competing sides in the English Civil War could come to some sort of agreement, whereas the metaphysical was the point of conflict in the first place. I don't know, actually, because the problem with the Enlightenment is the abolition of metaphysics, right? It's entirely, it, it creates a mechanistic universe in which the universe operates as, it, as a machine, and therefore, even like Hobbes is uh, mechanical in this regard, and everything since is mechanical. And so if everything is mechanical, then there are no higher ideals that can be used to justify or create the kind of civilization that came before it. Mm -hmm. And so nothing is divinely ordained or anything like that. And so if everything's mechanistic, well, if we can learn how the mechanics work, we can change it and we've done nothing wrong. And so it allows us to just refashion humanity in our own image and however we want. And if we want to do it according to a mistaken assumption of how pre-modern or pre-social man existed, then we'll do that and we'll end up in a really unhealthy place because actually people didn't evolve to do that. I certainly see the argument you're making, but I, you know, see the value in metaphysics and I'm quite materialistic as a, a scientist. Sure. And it's, it's not wrong to recognize that materialism exists, but the problem I think is that in the early phases of this intellectual revolution, it has a kind of seductive power. And this is the kind of Faustian pact that is ever present in the German mind. Um, if we have reduced the entire world to mere mechanics, then there is no place for God. And you would have to actually 
argue, you'd have to resist the materialization of all of human thought, which isn't something that liberalism itself can do. That requires something else that's non-liberal to say, well, actually, I think there is a transcendence of God or something like that. And the liberal goes, well, that's your business. It's like, okay, but it is our business, you know, and it is something that people believe, and it is something that even the people defending liberalism will say is important. So liberalism has to be put in its proper place, which is not in charge of everything, actually. Yeah, well, I, when it comes to society, I don't think any political system has any business there in the first place. So I, I do li- agree. Liberalism isn't just a political system, though. That's the problem, because mm. it has a metaphysical claim, which is it's purely mechanical and not transcendent. Then it does. I see you shaking your head, but I. It, it's just I, not. The, I, but it does. It, like, how is it not? Well, first of all, um, I. I think it's Connor's time to. It's fine, yeah, just go because I'm going to have to circle all the way back around because <laughs> you've drifted right. off into metaphysics. I'm conscious yeah. of having spoken way too much on the first part, and I think it would be unfair. No, it's fine. Come on, I, w- I want to know why you're shaking it. Mm-hmm. Okay, so first of all, I want to say I'm, I'm incredibly happy we're having this discussion, mm-hmm. and thanks to all of you. You're welcome, Josh, for organizing it and for everyone for participating. So there are several areas of disagreement. I have, and many areas of agreement. I would say that for the most part, I agree with what you said before. What I disagree with is the framing of it in the context of a larger theoretical framework. So I agree with a lot of the observations you're making about society. I sort of disagree with the way you integrate it in a political framework. And the reason why I care for this is because it seems to me that rhetoric a rhetoric that becomes that doesn't put center stage that doesn't highlight the need for a, for individual rights and for a private sphere this has all the right elements for it to become a mix for tyranny whether intentional or unintentional but let me just say there are several issues and i will get to this uh, but i'll try to keep it brief so first of all Classical liberalism in the abstract may have the issues that you mentioned before, but I think that if we look at it in its real historical context, it was not so much an issue of atomization, or it was not its purpose was not to keep people apart. Its purpose was to keep people apart from killing each other. Also to prevent injustices and tyranny from the state. Yeah. This was one major facet of it. Because the goal was to create a system in which people coexist. Now, the way the thought experiment of man in a state of nature and uh, that comes in a very weird way in liberalism, I think that it's it, we don't have to touch upon it. We would need a completely different discussion. But when it comes to judging social ills, I think that it is very important to not fall into a reductionist frame of mind, which is simple and because of its simplicity, it attracts people. And for instance, in the other side, it's, it, attra- it uh, has the attraction of Marxism. I think that we shouldn't boil down everything to the political system that some countries accepted. I think that this is mistaken. And for instance, when we're talking about technology, technology has always been a thing. Human beings have always tried to use uh, the resources of their environment in order to build weapons, to, ha- to create better habitat, 
in order to do all sorts of things. So it seems to me that we cannot overstate the importance of modern physics. Now, when it comes to materialism, materialism is a metaphysical doctrine. Um, it becomes inevitable, I think, if we concede the empiricist view of reason. I think it becomes inevitable there. But not everyone has accepted this. And I would say that it's not just as Abe the Disinformed told me that I'm just picking up figures here or there. I don't think that classical liberalism has to lead to materialism or has to lead to utilitarianism. A lot of the times people are actually judging classical liberals for being too proceduralists. Procedural values are most probably the most frequently deontological ones. They don't have to do with the greater good, in which case you could say, like Bentham, what are rights? They're nonsense on stilts. So I do agree with you about a lot of things when you're talking about social ills. I would not classify them as an outgrowth of liberalism. And I think that there is a tendency when we do that, to a degree it's understandable, but there is a tendency of not looking at the actual concrete history of Western societies. And also, I want to say that, for instance, we cannot overstate the effect that the two world wars have had on the way people approached life and the philosophical systems and philosophical approaches towards life that generate, were generated afterwards. And also, we cannot overstate the, imp the precari precariousness after World War II that was pervasive across Europe, let's say, which led to a very large extent to the welfare state and to its increasing, let's say, to its tendencies to become really increased. So I am very mindful of how we frame things because I'm, I think that we are liable or we are more likely to fall into the trap of using the language of other people who perform conceptual subversion, which is by definition intentional. To use concepts that have a symbolic state status in the minds of people in order to mess up the way we're thinking. So when I'm talking about classical liberalism, I'm talking about just a doctrine of how the state should relate to human beings. And that means it should be neutral to comprehensive moral doctrines and allow, by implication, a private sphere of activities that are free from interference. So. When it comes to this, you can, you can be in, in favor of moral shaming. There's no, nothing that prevents you from moral shaming, um, if you want. You can also not engage in it, but no one tells you not to do it. Um, you can believe in God. You can be, you can be, be an atheist. You can uh, join a monastery if you think that the good life consists in a sort of creation of a religious mindset that uh, can only be created or developed within a monastery. No one is stopping you. So when I'm saying this, it seems to me that there are all sorts of factors at play. And I think that to a very large extent, it is the empiricist view of reason that does lead towards these excesses. So can I, can I pick up on a few things? Of course. I, I think this and is... Because uh, just by saying yeah. this, I, I'm not a materialist. Uh, no, no, I'm not. I'm very that. conscious that we're, we're just going to have to finish that. Sorry, and restart the entire conversation. I mean, honestly, we're just we're just on something very interesting here, right? Because so, okay, let's take the post World War 20th century. How 
if not through liberalism, there's something like women's liberation. The, like, cause in any other system, they would say, what do you mean women's liberation? Women are to be wives and mothers to produce the next generation of children in order to make sure the civilization continues. And so what we should do is make sure that the conditions are at best for women to be able to do that. And so they can raise healthy, happy families. The women can't be overburdened and they are as, as honored as possible in civilization in a traditional way, like it would have been, you know, a hundred years prior, right? Women's liberation comes about purely through a liberal view that all things that happen to a person should be consent based. And therefore, oh, you wanted to have sex, you consent to that, but you don't consent to having, consent to having pregnancy. Therefore, technology needs to be developed to prevent the pregnancy while enabling the sex. Of course, this creates a massive issue socially. And so this, I don't see how this can be called anything other than the consequence of liberalism. It's the value and the technological innovation in line with the value from the civilizations that created the Industrial Revolution and liberalism in order to further liberate a person from the, ob the obligations nature and society would put upon them in order to make sure that they live according to the natural way things are. So I think we can lay that directly at the feet of liberalism and say that is what's happened. I mean, these people would have called themselves liberals. They're expressing liberal values. They're trying to achieve liberal ends. So I don't know why we wouldn't call those people liberals. And that's a you know direct concrete example from the 20th century that I think shows liberalism that has gone far beyond being merely a legal doctrine. Because I, of course, agree. You know, I'm an Englishman. Of course, I agree that there should be limits on the state and we should have habeas corpus and you know, constitutional rights and things like that. But that's not what's being discussed when we're talking about women's liberation. That's way, we're way past that. Right? And so that's liberalism being applied to society because it becomes the only value set that they have because, and I, I really think this is the case, because of the prestige of liberalism when dealing with the state. Like liberalism accrues to itself a great, and it's still now a, a good word to be a liberal, right? You say, oh, I'm a liberal about these things. And it's like, okay, well, that means I'm a good person, you know, because, and in a way, it kind of always will because it will always be good to resist the tyrant, right? It will always be good to do that. And so that's, it will always have that kind of prestige. And so it can get applied to anything and bring the prestige with it. This is press. Sorry. I, I was just going to make a very quick point of, um, Sorry, Stelios um, and Connor. Um, just that there, there are societies that were hunter-gatherer societies and um, anthropologists, uh, particularly feminist ones, really love this, this example, that there are matriarchal societies that are still hunter-gatherer. And so it's, it's possible within the scope of the human condition to have these sorts of societies without um, a, a complex system such as liberalism. And I think that it's not inevitable that liberalism would create it, but you are right. I'm not in, saying that liberalism creates hunter-gatherer matrix. No, obviously not. <laughs> I don't know what the right. No, as in it's responsible for for feminism, and I think you are right that they use the language of of liberalism. But it, I think that it's, I'm not it, saying it's responsible for, but it definitely facilitates. Mm. But it's it, even if you weren't to call it feminism, it just called it say women's liberation. I think the notion is entirely liberal. Okay, well. I, I, I am done. So okay. go, go ahead. Sorry. So, um, sorry, Connor. I, I will get to you. I feel very bad because you've been very patient. So I think when we are talking about the women's liberation movement, we need to bear in mind the different waves of feminism. So the first classical wave of feminism, the, you know, Mary Wollstonecraft, who was, I think, 
She was a really good friend of Edmund Burke, by the way. Uh, uh, she was one of his fiercest critics. I think, though, she admired him, though. She was a proto-communist. Well, I don't know. In, 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 in her abolition of the rights of... Um, no, what was it? Her direct rejoinder to Burke, she called for the complete abolition of all property. Anyway, I, you know about this more than I do, but what I'll say is with respect to feminism, if we're talking about uh, women having equal rights with men, I'm pro that. But afterwards, if we are looking at things like, or people like, let me put Simone de Beauvoir, or uh, afterwards, uh, you know, uh, who was it? Firestone. Shimla Firestone. I was going to cover all of this, by the Firestone. way, but that's fine. I've read the and, yeah, yeah, yeah. We can go through a lot of uh, feminists afterwards, they are, I would say, overwhelmingly Marxists. And Marxists do use the notion of liberation. So I would say that it is much better if we look past the word and the slogan, slogan liberation and emancipation, and look at the actual people who are trying to incorporate some, some uh, terms. But it's, it's the desire to go in this direction rather than the desire to the, the desire to maximize what it is to be yes. a woman in the old sense, to have a life yeah. plan. I agree with this, totally. That is why I try to, po- to put emphasis on the concrete, because if we look at things in the abstract, mm. we can generate all sorts of monstrosities. And that is why one of the implications of what I'm saying is that when we're using terms, especially when we're talking about history and historical trends, we should tie uh, these terms to history that generated them, rather than just saying, okay, I, I will I'll arbitrarily pick up a point here, I'll, I'll cut up the history before it, take the people who call themselves liberal at the time, for instance, Trudeau, and talk about liberation at that time, yeah. and talk about liberals then, because if we are, and I do think that a lot of conservative insights are really great. That is why I call myself a conservative liberalism. And I think that the, ma- the, the majesty of conservatism comes with looking at the real concrete world of the here and now within which ideas become em- adopted and used for thinking, communicating, and all sorts of stuff. Now, if we see this, it seems to me that we should be very skeptical of people who incorporate the term. That is why I want to say that how we frame things is important, because if we don't frame things in a way that is consistent with the history of the term, I think we're falling into the trap of people who do conceptual subversion of the concepts of liberty. And they won't stop there. They will continue to the concept of community. They will try to say, well, community is not an aggregate of individuals, God forbid. Community is just a number of people that are organized in a particular way and have some sentiments. It has to be inclusive. And they could just bring in the communist notion of community into it. To watch the full video, please become a premium member at lotuseaters.com.